Well, good evening. There is the story of a farmer who read of a mule that was voice command. When you said go, he would go. When you said stop, he would stop, turn left, he would turn left. And you could hook up the plow, take a megaphone, sit on your porch, and just call it out. And he thought, oh, this is too good to be true. He went, saw a demonstration, it was true, paid top dollar, took the mule home, hooked it up to the plow, sat down and said, go. And the mule just sat down and did nothing. So he starts, giddy up, run, pull, he's, oh, nothing's working. I think, Mr. Seller, you gave me the wrong mule. And the seller said, I'll be there. Seller comes over, takes a two-by-four about three feet long from the back of his truck and walks up to the mule and goes like a baseball bat and bam, right across the mule's forehead. He said, go. And the mule starts going. He said, first, you have to get his attention. I look around the world today and I wonder, has God got our attention? Has God got our attention I'm a little troubled by what I see. Obviously, all of you are the same thing. COVID has done a number on the world. We don't need to go into details, but it has. Our country is a little over three weeks away from a major election. And I'm hearing people say stuff, sometimes unkind. The social unrest in our country right now is not just disagreement, it's dangerous. And I've heard people say, you know, we're all in this together. And I think, well, yeah, that's a great sentiment, but I don't think we're all in the same type of boat. I think there's some people in some really nice boats far away from the epicenter of the hurricanes, and there's most people in these little tiny boats that are getting ravaged and devastated. We might be in the same storm, but we're not in the same boat. And I thought, Lord, this is getting to me. I mean, I, I start having bad thoughts. <laughs> I start, I start wanting to say stuff I shouldn't say to people. Oh. And then I say over and over, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And I said, what's the solution to this? And the only thing that comes to mind is revival. So I'm looking at the history of revival and I see that revival always happened the same way. And then I look at the cause of revival and I see the cause is always the same. And I said, is there hope for us? And I began to study it. And so tonight I want to talk about wrestling for revival. First, let's pray. Father, ah, the only salvation, eternal salvation comes from you. And the only deliverance, Lord, ultimately comes from you. Open our ears, our hearts, our minds to behold with all the saints the wondrous things from your word, Lord. And give us hope and purpose in Jesus' name. Amen. Revival always follows the same pattern. You've got a bunch of believers following God... And the next generation 
isn't following God as more as much as they're being religious. They just start, you know, we got to sing the songs the way we sung them back then. We got to do it the way it was. They're more religious about the rules. So the relationship becomes rules, which immediately leads to rebellion. Have you ever seen a sign that said wet paint? Don't touch. I'm curious. How many of you touched? Okay, see, see, we're naturally. Have you ever seen a speed limit sign? I'm curious. I, no, don't, don't raise your hands. We are naturally rebellious. So relationship becomes religion, becomes rebellion, becomes reaping. You reap what you sow. Judgment isn't always necessarily God throwing judgment down. Judgment is often God just saying, okay. Because in Romans 1, he tells us that when they knew God, they would not give him glory as God, nor worship him as God, but decided to worship the creature more than the creator, and God gave them over. It's like, that's what you want? Go for it. Revival, religion, rebellion, reaping, and generally during the course of those re- that reaping, there's repentance. When we realize how bad it's gotten, it's like, oh, I can't continue like this, which brings revival again. That same cycle is seen over and over again in the Bible, but it's also seen over and over again in our country. So let me start with the Bible. The book of Judges is 400 years of history. Moses has brought them out of Egypt. They've come to the plains of Moab. They're about to enter the land. Moses, over about a one-month period, gives three sermons that are caught in the, or, or written, captured in the book of Deuteronomy. And the last sermon has what they call the blessings and the cursings, multiple chapters. So that one set of stuff is, if you do these things and obey me, all these blessings are yours. But... If you disobey me, all these cursings are yours. And then they enter the land, and it's a 400-year period. During this 400-year period of the judges, there are seven cycles of rebellion, reaping, repentance, revival. Every 56, 57 years, there was a revival. Every generation, and that follows a generation. One generation comes in, and they love the Lord, and the next generation is brought into what they consider religion. I have to do this because my parents do it. And it, it, for them, it's more rules, and we, you know about the wet paint sign. You know what we do. There's rebellion. And Judges says, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now, that kind of sounds like our country today, doesn't it? Everyone's doing what's right. In his, that's my opinion. That's your opinion. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Seven times. Then the kings come in, and these cycles continue without going into the details until finally the nation Judah has been taken captive into Babylon. And it's while they are in captivity that the sons of Korah pen what we call Psalm 85. Psalm 85. So if you'd like to turn there, Psalm 85 has three sections, a past, a present, and a future. And beginning in verse 1, while they're in captivity, while they're reaping, while they're in the midst of saying, how did this happen? And they realize, oh, yeah, we brought this on ourselves. He writes, O Lord, 
You showed, past tense, past. Remembering what God has done. Oh, Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. He's looking back at the times of revival God had brought. You withdrew all your fury. You turned away from your burning anger. God, we know that you have done this in the past. We know that you have taken a rebellious people who repented and restored them to greatness. We know you've done this. And then he goes to the present. They're still reaping. Beginning in verse 4. Restore us. O God of our salvation, and cause your indignation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourself revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us, Lord, your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your deliverance, your salvation. Lord, we look back. We, We know you've done this. We know you can do this. We know you can take people who are under judgment and facing all kinds of social, political, disease-type evils, and you can revive them. We've seen you do it over and over again. Would you do it again? Will you do it again? So my question is, what am I praying for now? Am I praying for revival? Am I praying for personal comfort? Am I acknowledging our transgressions or am I pointing the finger at transgressors? And then he begins to envision the future when God will have restored them again in verse 8. I will, future tense, hear what God the Lord will say for he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Remember, they're in captivity in a different land. Glory in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That happened on the cross also, by the way. Truth springs from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. Indeed, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before him, and will make his footsteps into a way. So they remembered what God had done. We know you can do this. They prayed, God, would you do this again? And they looked forward in hope that God will do this. And they could look at the book of Judges and say, God has done this over and over again. We rebelled. Judgment came. We were reaping. We repented, and God restored. We rebelled. God allowed judgment to come. We repented, and God restored over and over again. And we said, well, that's the Bible. You know, because we know those are the saints. (laughs) We're the ain'ts. This is not our world. This is their world. You know, the United States has had a history of evil and corruption that would put any other era in any other place to shame. 
People might say, oh, this is the worst I've ever seen it. Well, maybe the worst I've seen it in my lifetime. But you look back at our history. The Salem witch trials that would torture people in order to confess so that they might burn them alive. The child abuse and labor laws early in the history. Childhood prostitution is common. The class system. The inhumanity, the lawlessness, the moral decadence. We see movies that have a Western, and in the bar they've got these saloon ladies that are, those saloon ladies were 13, 14 year old girls. And they weren't going around happy. They were forced into prostitution. Our country has been so evil in the past. And yet, every revival in our nation has occurred against the backdrop of great evils. And I would say we are there now. Every revival began when there were just a few people, you can trace it, just a few believers somewhere saying, oh God, revive us again. Every revival saw great evangelism, large throngs of people coming to the faith in such a short period of time that society changed, jails closed, houses of prostitution closed, drug addiction was ended, and righteousness ruled the land. Every revival saw new expressions of worship and gatherings, but was criticized by the mainline denominations. Every revival ended because of the same thing. The gathered were no longer about their relationship with the Lord and evangelism of the lost, but they were about the comfort of the saints. And rather than evangelizing the lost, they went from praying for salvation to influencing politics in order to make life comfortable. And when the politicians became their God, rather than God Almighty, God gave them over. Every revival ended when the people looked to their politicians for their salvation rather than to their Lord Jesus Christ. And it always happened with that first generation that came in and got saved and said, I want a comfortable life. And tried to do it from the top down rather than through evangelism from the bottom up. It is true that when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. And when the wicked rule, the people suffer. And we should be involved politically. We should vote. We should do all of these things. We, we vote the positions. We do. I'm not saying don't. I'm saying when we make them our savior, we've looked for the wrong salvation. Josiah oversaw one of the revivals in the nation of Judah from the top down. And he passed laws. People say, you can't legislate morality. Yes, you can. <laughs> it was Mao Zedong said, we don't believe in God, but we believe in guns. <laughs> and we enforce morality with the barrel of a gun. And you know what? When you're pointing a gun at somebody, they tend to obey you. <laughs> and Josiah from the top down brought what they called a revival on the nation of Judah. But it says, but the people's hearts were never changed. And as soon as he died, they said, and the people went back to wickedness even greater than before. He brought revival from the top down. He did not change the hearts of the people. 
However, let me look at the history of revival in our country. Remember how God brought revival every 57 years in the book of Judges? God brought a major revival that absolutely changed the course of this country since its founding until today, every 40 years. History. The first revival is what was called the Great Awakening. Anybody hear of the Great Awakening? The Great Awakening... 1734 to 1743, Jonathan Edward, George Whitfield, they used to bring these wagons up to the bar towns. Everybody's getting drunk. It's the middle of the day. And, and, and the music of the time was more the Gregorian chants, uh, something that people couldn't relate to. So what, what this evangelist did was he took the bar songs. There once was a girl whose name was Matilda, and it's like, Jesus Christ is Lord Almighty. And they changed him, and he'd pull this wagon up with a piano, and he'd start playing the bar tunes, and he, he, was, and he would sing Christian stuff. And the people would come out in masses to hear him, and then he would say, you need to get right with the Revival was sweeping the country. Of course, he did write in his journal that when the religious leaders came out and threw bricks at him, he knew that he had done a good job. Because how can you blaspheme the Lord with that music? Oh, I remember the 70s when they brought guitars in church. You would think. Oh, well, we're not going to go there. So the first was the Great Awakening in the 1730s and 40s. Then, then the second was the second Great Awakening, 1800s. How many of you have heard of Charles Finney? Right? This is about 40 years later. Swept the nation. Prisons are closing. People are getting off of drugs. Remember, a lot of the drugs then, they weren't illegal the way they are now. Child labor isn't illegal then the way it was now. Prostitution, it was illegal, but nobody enforced it. And, and, and the revival changed society. And then in the 1860s, they called it the businessman's revival. God started getting a hold of all of these businessmen. We're coming into a, a, a more of a... Uh, switching from an agrarian society to more of a business-type society. And God started getting hold of the businessmen all over the nation. 1860s again, they called it the Civil War Revival. People all over the battlefields coming to faith in the Lord. Right in mass, in mass. The fifth was the urban revivals of the 1870s. How many of you remember the name Dwight L. Moody? He was going to the big metropolitan cities and running evangelists, masses of people, changed society. Now, in between every one of these, the world got really ugly again. Got really ugly. The sixth was what they called the mass evangelism revivals of the early 1900s. Billy Sunday? Anybody hear Billy Sunday? He was the Billy Graham of his era. The seventh was the Azusa Street revivals. And they were also in the early 1900s, gave birth to the Pentecostal movement that swept the nation, swept the world. The eighth is what they call the post-World War II revival, 1950s. All these people coming back, everything, the whole world was shattered by what they had seen. And they came back empty. And then God swept. The ninth happened about the same time it was the college revival. God not only took all these people coming back from World War II, God got onto the college campuses and Campus Crusade for Christ started and some young pup by the name of Billy Graham started doing his thing. Every one of these revivals ended within five to ten years when they went from relationship to religion to rebellion. 
The last revival, the 10th, is what's known as the Jesus Movement. It happened in the 60s and the 70s. How many in this group here came to the Lord sometime in the 60s or 70s during that revival? Let me hold your hands up for a minute. Look around. Your pastor, Skip Heidzig, came in during that time. God got a hold of me during that time. And it very soon became political. Anybody here of moral majority? The moral majority was a, it was a political movement that formed about the 70s when the church switched from we need to evangelize the lost to we need to influence the politicians. And the revival died. And now we're 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000. 2010, 2020. We're between 40 and 50 years from the last revival. And our country has fallen apart. Just like every revival before. And I think, hmm. the Psalm 85 apply here? I said, so we're right for a revival, but what has happened with every revival? And there were two things. That's why I've titled this message, Wrestling for Revival. There was an inward wrestling and an outward wrestling. I'm going to begin with the inward wrestling. Inward wrestling is about personal revival. See, the scripture says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We're so often looking out there when I need to start by looking in here. We're so often looking at how society needs to change when I really need to look at how my heart needs to change. So the first one begins with this. We wrestle within by, first, I have to know which enemy I'm fighting. And the answer is real easy. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Paul in Romans 7, maybe some of you can relate to this, said, The things I know that are right, I don't do. The things that I know are wrong, I find myself doing them. And even though I know it's wrong and I agree with the law that it's wrong, I do it anyway. And even though it's right and I know that it's right, I'm not doing it. Can anybody relate to Paul? The Apostle Paul, come on, the saint struggling with sin. <laughs> kind of funny. And then he said, this battle between the flesh and the spirit, the war is waged in my mind. In my mind. So when that event happens, I have this. Let's say somebody drives and cuts you off on the road. Anybody have that happen at some point? My mind will go to places it shouldn't go. Does anybody have that struggle? And I have to do something the Bible says. Yeah, I see some guy over here goes. <laughs> it's like. It's like. Paul also writes, we need to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So when that person does that maneuver and my mind responds, I need to very quickly, as Paul said, the battle is in my mind, capture that thought before it escapes and say, oh no, I just need to pray for the idiot person. <laughs> because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And it happens in the church also. Paul talked about the church workers who said you're in, in Ephesus, uh, not Paul, John, in the book of Revelation, he's talking to the church in Ephesus. And he said, and you're doing all this stuff right. And you got the right doctrine. And you got the right teaching. And you're doing all the good. And, you, and you're doing it all right. He says, but you left your first love. One of the most dangerous places for a minister is in the ministry. 
because you get so busy serving God, you forget to serve Jesus. And we have to keep ourselves in check, catch ourselves. So we battle the flesh. We battle the world. Paul says, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present yourself as living sacrifices to God and be renewed in the inner man by the regeneration of your mind. You see, John tells us we're not to love the world nor the things of the world. Now, he's not saying the world like the planet, nor is he talking about the world um, of humanity because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He's talking about the world that lies in the lap of the wicked one. My priority should not be advancement on earth. My priority should be advancement of the kingdom on earth. So we don't love the world. So it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. It says, be careful. He's writing to Christians. Be careful, says Peter. The devil as a roaring lion seeks whom he may devour. And we have to be careful. Because he'll tell you, you're not good enough. He'll tell you, God loves everybody else, but you're just like a second-class saint. He'll t- now, now can, can Satan put words into your head? Answer, yes. Proof, Ananias and Sapphira. Why has Satan filled your heart? And Satan's right there. Now, he can't read your mind, but he can put thoughts in. He did it to Ananias and Sapphira, and they were believers. And he'll tell you, you'll never amount to much. You can't do it. You can never be holy like them. Everybody else is saved graciously, you by the skin of your teeth. Sit down, be quiet. You're nothing. And God says, you're overcomers who can conquer the world and turn the world upside down. The world, the flesh, and the devil. I don't need Satan to beat me up. I can beat myself up. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? But Satan's there to help. And the world system is there to help too. So the first wrestling is, I got to know what I'm fighting. I'm not fighting those people. I'm fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. I know the battle. But then, even though I know my enemies, I have to know what my weapons are. Ephesians chapter 6 tells me my weapons. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. How many of us have sought to fight the people when we should be fighting the spiritual battle? How many of us has focused on them instead of focusing on what's influencing them? They have been blinded by the God of this world. They are victims of abuse who need rescue. How many of us came to the Lord later after a life of not good? So the priority is we're going to stand, and this is how. We know our enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We know it's a spiritual battle. But now I've got to get my weapons. If I'm going to fight, what am I going to fight with? Therefore, take up the full armor of God, says Paul, 
so that you will be able to resist in that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Okay. So I know who my enemy is. I know it's a spiritual battle. I know I've got to do it using armor. What's my armor? Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shed your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this with all perseverance and supplication." I have to get dressed for battle. He says, put on the belt of truth. Now for them, the belt held everything. That's where they hung everything. You ever see a police officer that got what they call the utility belt? And on that utility belt, everything is there. Well, that's what he's talking about, the utility belt. It also had these straps that hung down like an apron. Uh, if anybody's ever worn an apron when they're cooking or seen those. But this apron, would have, their leather would have brass all embedded because it had to do with your stance. People will try to take your legs out. But I've got a stance. I've got all my weaponry on my waist, and I've got a stance that they can't take my legs out. What you're doing is you're getting dressed for what you stand for. So here's my question. As a believer in Jesus Christ, what do you stand for? I think sometimes people know more what I stand against than what I stand for. What do you stand for? Ask yourself that question. Belt of truth. And put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness, this this, like brass, it it guarded the heart. Now the heart had this two parts to it. One part was, God gives us a new heart. We come to faith in the Lord and our heart has changed from a heart of flesh to a heart of the spirit. But the other is, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can't take a spring, says Jesus, and have good and bad water at the same time. A tree doesn't give good and bad fruit. And I look at this, and to tell you, I'm so grieved. I'm so grieved over this. See, Paul said, let no vile communication proceed out of your mouth, only that which is good to the use of edifying. Okay, I got that. It says, Jesus, as a lamb before his shears was dumb, that as they accused him and beat him, he he said nothing. And then he tells these people, Peter was written to suffering Christians. He says, and when they come against you, when they persecute you, you should be living such a godly way that they see your good works and they glorify God. They've got nothing to accuse you of. Paul says it in one of my favorite ways when he's writing to Timothy, a young pastor. He says, the worker of the Lord must never strive, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves. If God peradventure would grant to them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And this is why I'm grieved. Have you looked at Christians' social media? Anybody look? We get emails here with people who disagree with us all the time. Not everybody agrees with everybody. They said, if, if, everybody, if everybody agrees with you, somebody's not thinking. So we get emails all the time. But unfortunately, these 
who are workers for Christ, as they profess, are quoting the Bible, say some of the most hateful, vitriolic things I have ever read. And I see the same thing on social media, attacking and putting people down. And you know, when Paul then Saul was persecuting the church and Jesus on Damascus counting, told Paul, he said, lie down. He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm the Lord who you're persecuting. Oh. So Jesus doesn't like it when I slap his fiance. Jesus doesn't like it when I act ungodly and unbecoming to those who are created in the image of God. Because God proved his love toward us and that while we were sinners, he died for us. He didn't say, while you were sinners, he condemned us. What does your social media look like? What do your conversations look like? Are we pleading for those who have been lost and damaged and hurt by Satan like we were? Or are we condemning them? Jesus said there was a Pharisee and a publican who went to pray. Now, in the Jewish culture, the Pharisee was the godliest, most holy person you could think of. And the publican was the worst type of sinner. When we say, you know what a really bad sinner is like, and we list it in our society for them, publican was the worst of the worst. And he said, and the Pharisee came up to the temple, lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I tithe, I fast, I pray. I'm so godly. Not like him. And it said that the publican stood a long way off and, and was beating his chest. The idea is he's just, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, that man was justified. And I'm asking what kind of attitude I carry. Am I saying, God, be merciful to me? And to them, I was trapped. I was lost. Satan had me. He was hurting me. He had me doing all kinds of stuff. I was doing stuff my own, but Am I now a Pharisee? Pharisees don't see revivals. Save publicans do. So, I've got the belt of truth, the breastplate of right, righteousness, feet prepared for the gospel. Now, these were thick leather shoes. They had, you know, we, we see athletes today, they wear cleats, you know, on their, like football players. These cleats that dig into the ground. So, when they, when they go, they don't slip. And the idea is, you prepare your feet so that when you're going, you don't slip. You go without slipping. You have firm footsteps. You know your stance. Your heart is guarded. And you step with purpose. Shield of faith. It was about four feet high and a couple feet wide usually covered with the skin of some type of cloth or animal dipped in water because the enemy would fire arrows, fiery arrows. And this is why it says, so you might be able to quench the fiery darts. They would fire arrows and you would catch them and they would go out. And that's the enemy saying, you're not good enough. But Jesus, per Paul in Romans 8 says, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God says, I'll remove their sins as far as the east is from the west. Now, last time I looked at a map, those things don't meet. God says, their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. God said, not only were your sins taken away, but you were made the righteousness of God in Christ. 
And our shield of faith is when Satan says, you're not good enough. It's like, that's why Jesus saved me. I had a friend years and years ago that her life had fallen apart. Um, I'm not even getting into the issues. And, and some things had happened that it was like most people had said that she was disqualified for ministry. And without going into it, she, she wound up going on a YWAM thing. And she was a worship leader. And, and, and she said what dawned on her at some point during this trip was, because Satan kept saying, you're not good enough, you're used goods. That at some point it was like, well, because I'm not good enough, God can use me. Because I know it's not me. And she came back and tore up the world. She was great. You know who I'm talking about, don't you? Shield of faith. Helmet of salvation. That's, you know, the head and the necks, all the vital organs. Because I need to be transformed in the inner man through the regeneration of my mind. My question is, what are you thinking about when nobody's looking? What are my thoughts before God? Do I take my thoughts captive or do I let them run wild? Picture again, somebody cuts you off. How long will I go down that rabbit trail of what pops into my head versus how long will I call it captive and say, no, I don't need to go there. When somebody has a political opinion I disagree with, since we're in that season. When somebody has a pandemic position I disagree with. When somebody has a social position I disagree with, where do my thoughts go? What do I think? Helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Their their swords weren't the stuff that we'd see in the old movies. Their swords were two feet. The idea was close quarter combat. I'm going to get right up in your face and we're going to deal with this. And the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. It's the only offensive weapon we have. And Jesus used it in Deuteronomy when Satan came up and said, If you be the Son of God, do that. Jesus said, Get thee behind me. He said, It is written, it is written, it is written. Do you know the Word? The Word of God is sharper and powerful than, is sharp and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even between the dividing asunder of the soul and the Spirit and the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Do I know the Word? Am I being renewed? Do I hunger for the word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. How does a young man keep his way? By knowing and obeying the word of God. Do I know the word? Am I allowing God's word to change me? Am I looking at what God says about me? I'm a child of God. I'm forgiven. I'm loved. I'm blessed. I have a future. I have a hope. I have a purpose. Or am I listening to Satan? You are nothing. You are ugly. You will never make it. By the way, you blew it. Of course I blew it. I'm a sinner. Save my grace. You're never going to be good enough. I'm not good enough to be standing up here, but by the grace of God. And it's only by God's grace that I can stand up here. None of us are good enough. So, how do we fight our battles? Well, our inward battle is we know our enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And we put on the armor. But now that we've done this, how do we fight? So we know our enemy, it's a spiritual battle. We know ourselves, I got to get dressed for battle, but how do I fight? Well, that's the last of um, chapter 6 in Ephesians. With all prayer and supplication. Supplication. Have you ever had life go south on you? You know what I'm saying? You didn't see it coming, maybe you saw it coming, life just went south. 
And, and, and it's so bad that you're not eating, you're not sleeping, you're wor- you, you know what I'm talking about? It's so bad that it's physically messing you up. Life has gone south. And you're saying, oh God, that's supplication. Supplication is when life goes south. That's when you're praying earnestly with emotion. So I pray, but y'all know what I'm talking about when life goes south. There's not a person in this room who couldn't tell a story. When they couldn't even get the words, their appetite was gone, their sleep left them. And they just, oh God, how am I going to survive? Supplication. With all prayer and supplication, pray at all times in the Spirit. That doesn't mean close your eyes while you're driving. It means that I've always got to have an attitude of prayer. You know the reason they have them close their eyes and, and, and do their hands? This wasn't biblical. Do biblical times they open their eyes and raise their hands? We do it because we have kids stealing each other's food at the dinner table. Close your eyes. Fold your hands. Stop hitting your brother. And we think it's holy. They prayed like this. We do this. It's only because we got religion for our kids. Okay. okay. Praying with all prayer and petition, supplication, praying at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. I am praying for God to strengthen His saints to equip them for the work of the ministry. Mm. See, the battle for the Christian isn't fought in the political arena, though we are to vote and be involved. The battle for the Christian is fought on our knees, first to wrestle with myself, and then to wrestle on behalf of the world. It's not fought on Twitter. Athletes prepare by training constantly. Christians prepare by praying constantly. Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and when he came down with the three disciples who had gone up there, the rest of the disciples were down there, and a man had brought his son who was demon-possessed, and the disciples couldn't cast them out, and Jesus just said, get out, and it's done. And the disciples came up to him and said, why can't we do this? He said, you need to be praying and fasting. Am I prepared? Or do I wait to pray and fast when the light goes south? Am I grieved and weeping over my world? Or am I praying for God's blessing and comfort, which ended every revival? How am I praying? So if I know who my enemy is, and I'm fighting my enemy, and I'm putting on the armor of God, then that means my prayer should be that which is fighting the battle to advance the kingdom of God, not to bring personal comfort to my life. That doesn't mean I shouldn't pray for personal comfort. I pray for that all the time. I just say, oh, yes, God, bless me. Absolutely, we're supposed to pray all of this. But what is my priority? What consumes my prayer life? What do I pray for more than anything else? Am I broken over my world? Or am I condemning my world? I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Who am I when I pray? So first we wrestle inwardly for personal revival, armor of God, and then we wrestle outwardly by using our weapons. Stop being anxious instead in everything by prayer and supplication. Let your request be made known to God, and the God of peace shall keep your hearts and mind. Are my prayers 
about God's business, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, or about my business. Bless me in this manner so that I might be comfortable in this world. Every revival ends when the prayers become, bless me, not save them. And there have been 10 revivals, one every 40 years. We're past due. So, I'm going to give a biblical illustration. The context of this is Old Testament. It was given to the nation Israel, which was a theocracy. It basically meant God's in charge, and you serve him. He's your king. And the nation received blessings and cursings as a whole. So that's the context. But the principle of this, the application of this, goes everywhere. God gave an if-then proposition. King Solomon was at the dedication of the temple. They're dedicating the temple, the glory of God, revival's breaking out, and it's awesome. And God says, oh, by the way, when my people forget me, because when they get comfortable and they forget me, and they start trusting in their wealth rather than in me, he says, when they forget me, and they fall under judgment, the nation taken captive, then... He says, then, while under judgment, if my people, Second Chronicles 7, 14, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then from heaven will I hear, forgive them of their sins and heal their land. See, the Lord's arm is not short that he cannot save, nor his ear deaf that he cannot hear. He says, but the people's sins have separated us. So Paul I'm sorry, it's penned in Second Chronicles, the five ifs. If my people who are called by my name. I think one of the things that I always see stop revival is when the people of God blame the people of the world. Rather than say, you know, thank you God that I'm not like other men, prayers. Rather than, okay, if I'm called by your name, then I need to be advancing your kingdom. It's about me. Not about them. If my people, who are called by my name, one, will humble themselves and pray. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Am I a sinner who happened to find salvation? Or am I a self-centered, egotistical Pharisee who condemns those who aren't as good as me? If my people who are called by my names will humble themselves and pray. Present tense. Continuous and pray. It's not, yeah, I prayed yesterday. No. Pray. I live in a world of prayer. Oh, God, save us. Oh, God, deliver us. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. It has to do with obedience. Oh, God, I'm going to write these emails from the other side of a keyboard, and I'm going to post all this stuff on the social media, and please bless my ungodliness. No. If my people who are called by my names will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. It's okay that I live this way. God forgives me. 
Really? You know, the Bible says the devil believes but trembles. Just because I believe in God and believe what Jesus did doesn't mean I'm saved. The devil believes. I have to obey what he says and submit to him as Lord. Faith is knowledge, agreement, and repentance. And turn from their wicked ways. If, my people, call by my name, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then, then, from heaven will I hear. It's not that God doesn't hear. It's hears in a way that he's going to act. If I'm ever angry with my wife and she calls my name, I can pretend like I don't hear her, even though I do. Not that I would ever get mad at my wife because she's perfect. I'm just using that as an illustration. Is that good? (laughs) Then from heaven will I hear, forgive them of their sin. In the book of Jeremiah, the nation was carried away captive by the Babylonians. With the burning of Jerusalem, and the people in caravan chains being taken down the road into captivity. Judgment has fallen, absolute reaping. God speaks through Jeremiah these words. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Reaping. Then, the next verse, repenting. Then, You will call upon me, and you will pray to me, and then I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with your whole heart. And then the next verse, revival. And I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you to myself and bring you to a place of peace. Hmm. I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. The sons of Asaph had penned Psalm 85. We remember, God, you did this. We didn't deserve it, but you did this. You revived us over and over. God, would you revive us now? Because when you do, when you do this, it's going to be so glorious. Revive us, O Lord. In the biblical times, just the book of Judges, we see seven revivals. And every time there was a revival, they fell back into sin. By the way, has God ever blessed you and then you went out and sinned afterwards? I'm just, yeah, you don't have to raise your hand. Just, we would all raise our hands. Have you ever taken the blessed for God for granted and and lived just for yourself and then realized, you know, I need to live for him? That's, That's what this is about. Remember... Remember what God has done? He saved us. He delivered us. He called us his children. He took away our sins. And he said, I'm going to leave you on earth for one purpose. That I can use you to change others also. So we remember what God has done. He has revived us. And we repent for seeking our own way and seek his way. 
in order to see revival. In the Bible, we see it over and over again. In America, we see it 10 times every 40 years. We are 40 years removed, and our country is trashed right now. I think God got a two-by-four and came up, and he brought it back like a baseball bat, and he swung. And I think he got our attention, and he's saying, it's time to move. It's time to act. I have to target the right enemy. I have to put on the right armor, and I have to play, pray earnestly. I've got the correct enemy as the world, the flesh, and the devil, not them. I've got the correct standing in the armor of God, and I've got the correct engagement weapon, and that is my knees. That's how I win the battle. And God has brought revival every 40 years to this nation. And our nation is on the brink. What am I putting on Twitter and Facebook? How am I emailing my fellow believers in Christ? Vile communication or edification? Our nation is broken. Politicians won't save us. A move of the Spirit can. And every revival began with just one or two people gathered together saying, Oh God, save us. So what are you going to do about it? What are you going to personally do this week? Father, oh, how badly we need more than a politician. Oh, how badly we need more than seeking our own way. I pray, Lord, you have delivered us. Will you deliver us? In Jesus' name. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless and perfected before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, to him the all glory, honor, and power, and dominion, both now and forever. Amen. Shall we stand? We hope you enjoyed this special service from Calvary Church. We'd love to know how this message impacted you. Email us at mystory@calvarynm.church. And just a reminder, you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.